Welcome to the 206.com podcast. I am your host, Mark Morin, and you are listening to Diversity in Film, a 206 podcast series. This podcast series features in-depth interviews with filmmakers and industry experts discussing the topic of diversity in film. Look for episodes featuring director and activist Lin Chen, director and producer Emily Ting, executive director of the Northwest Film Forum, Vivian Hua, rapper Lex the Lexicon Artist, podcast host and film critic Isabella L. Price, world-renowned Disney film producer Don Hahn, director of marketing for Smart House Creative Amy Simon, film critic and podcaster The People's Critic Tim Hall, lifestyle blogger and film critic Aaron Hunley, actor, activist, and model Anna Lynn McCord. Thank you for listening to the 206.com podcast. Let's get to the interview. com. This is the 206.com podcast. Today, this is an episode of the Diversity in Film podcast series. And today I'm speaking with Ms. Emily Ting. Emily, how are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Now, you are in the film industry as you are, you are many hats. You are a producer, you are a director, writer. Tell me a little bit about who Emily Ting is within the, the world of film. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that introduction. I first got into film as a producer. So I produced or executive produced a few uh, independent features. So my first one was called The Kitchen, which starred Laura Prepon, Brian Greenberg, Dreama Walker. We had a really great cast. And, you know, after having done a few features as a producer, EP, I decided it was time to direct my first film. So about four years ago, my first feature, Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong, came out. And that had Brian Greenberg, Jamie Chun, and it was a sort of walk and talk romance in the vein of Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, but set in Hong Kong. And most recently, I directed my second feature called Go Back to China, which premiered at South by Southwest last year and just squeezed in a one-week theatrical in early March, right before everything shut down. So the timing of that was just crazy lucky. <laughs> I know, I was so excited for the film to get its release. Mm -hmm. As you know, I saw it in, in Seattle mm -hmm. Film Festival last year, and there was all that buildup, and I know you yeah. were excited. Then. But mm -hmm. yeah, that, I know that had a huge impact. Both those films you mentioned, Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong and Go Back to China, are available for people to watch mm -hmm. online now, correct? Uh, yes, they're both available on VOD, so iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, wherever you watch movies legally online, it's available. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, because I know both of those movies mm -hmm. are based on real life experiences that mm -hmm. you went through. So how much of that of your real life made it to the screen versus a little bit of artistic license for the sake of movie making? So 
both films were, you know, semi-autobiographical and kind of loosely based on experiences I had. So the first film, Already Tomorrow Hong Kong, um, was based on a real-life encounter I had with a uh, expat who was living in Hong Kong at the time. And we had a very similar sort of night. And then at the end of it, I found out that he had a girlfriend and the whole thing was, you know, the the connection that I thought we had was all sort of made up. But that one, I, I would say, was more loose in its basis in real life. But Go Back to China, for people who don't know, Go Back to China is about a sort of LA trust fund kid who, after blowing through most of her trust fund, is cut off by her father and forced to go back to China and work for the family toy business. The main character is a very exaggerated version of myself at 24. And a lot of, you know, the things that happen in the first act, like her blowing through her trust fund and getting cut off, like all of that was done for dramatic effect. But once she went back to China, like that was very much based on my real life experience in that I, you know, I went back to China when I was 24 and I worked for the family toy business for over like a decade, for over 12 years. So, so much of that was very much based on my, my real life experience. And a lot of the family dynamics in the film is also very much sort of, you know, based on real relationships. So, you know, like the daughter and father relationship and the and uh, her relationship with her with her half sister. That's all a lot of it is based on truth, even though I took a lot of dramatic license and, you know, not every single thing that happened in the movie happened in real life. But I was just trying to capture a sort of like the truth of my experience. Yeah, the, what really comes across to me in both of the films is just they're very authentic. You know, they're very just, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of truth in those stories, you know, within the storytelling. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the casting of Jamie Chung and Brian Greenberg, who are a real life couple themselves, which I think maybe lent a little bit to like the connection that you see in the film as well, right? Yeah, I mean that certainly makes things easy when your on-screen couple is a is an off-screen couple as well because that chemistry it's really hard to manufacture if they don't have it like separately the two of them could be brilliant actors but just right. something you know and you've you've definitely seen that in films before especially when you're making a romance if there's no chemistry the whole thing is dead but I can't say I could take you know people kept asking like oh my god that's so cool that like they got married after shooting your movie i can't i would love to take credit for it but i i can't they were already a couple i think they got engaged right before shooting the movie oh wow and then after the movie came out oh no they got married right before the movie came out we kept it kind of vague especially it makes a good story mm-hmm. so if people want to think they met on set and then got <laughs> married i kind of let them think that way but that's not what right happened. right <laughs> well it's all it's all for the sake of storytelling right yeah <laughs> but in terms of how they got attached to the movie so you know previously i mentioned uh, you know the first film i ever produced is this little indie called the kitchen and brian right. greenberg was the lead in that so i had a prior relationship with brian i'm um, just having produced the kitchen and then subsequently i produced another movie that he was in a year and change. So I knew Brian. It was at the release party for The Kitchen that he asked me, oh, you know, like, what are you working on next? And I told him that I, I had just written the script Mario Tomorrow in Hong Kong and I kind of pitched him, like, the idea of it. And right away, he was like, oh my God, that sounds a great project for my girlfriend. Do you know that I'm dating Jamie Chung? And <laughs> Jamie, I kid you not, like, while I was writing the script, she was my dream cast for Ruby. But I, 
you know, had no connections to her. I didn't know her. And I think at the time, Brian and Jamie were dating, but it was like not really out in the open. Like I had no idea that they were dating. Oh, wow. And it was just this very serendipitous thing that happened <laughs> where he just offered up my uh, my dream cast wow. to me at this party for this other movie that we worked on together. So I did the very Hollywood thing. I said, you know, actually she's my first choice for the role <laughs> of Ruby. If you don't mind, can I send you the script and you could share it with her. And obviously there's a male role. So if you read it with her and you like it, you can have the role. So I sent the script to him and by Hollywood standards, this is super fast. Two weeks later, he emailed me and he's like, yeah, we read it, we love it, we wanna do it. That's all it took. And my friends kept telling me, it's like, this never happens. You don't get your dream cast for your first movie. <laughs> two weeks after emailing them the script because usually you got to go through the agent you got to go through the managers and if you're a first time filmmaker they make you go through the ringer but because i knew brian i had a personal relationship with him and i had his email address it <laughs> was a very uh easy process no that's that's really cool i, I like how that came together it's yeah. almost like it was just meant to be and yeah. I think a lot of that speaks to the quality of the writing of the story of mm -hmm. they're immediately just jumping on it yeah. saying, yes we want to do this so now now, with that going into Go Back to China as well, mm -hmm. you had told me earlier before we started recording this interview that it was a very unique situation for you to be an American filmmaker mm. filming your, your movies and locations in China. Yeah, so I kind of occupy an interesting niche in um, sort of like the Asian American film community. You know, obviously I'm Asian American and all of my characters and stories are from the Asian American perspective, but both of my films, honestly, without you know any planning all happens to be based and shot in Asia and again that's not by design I think it's just because of the years that I had spent in Hong Kong and in China those were my formative years you know I spent all of my 20s living in Hong Kong right. and so I think it's just naturally that all the stories that I'm gravitating towards wanting to tell happen during those years and they happen in Hong Kong, they happen in China. But, you know, I see myself, and, it, and this is interesting because, you know, if I'm here, I'm treated as obviously an Asian American filmmaker because that's my perspective. But then when I go back to Asia to shoot, they treat me like an American filmmaker and an American crew. They don't treat me like a local, which I'm not because I'm still an American coming. Even though I speak the language, I communicate with them, but they, you know, at least the local crew, they usually operate with two rates. They're sort of like the local rates that we will give to local indie filmmakers. And then they have the Hollywood rate, even though I'm not Hollywood, <laughs> but they treat me as if, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's the American filmmaker with her American right, right. crew coming in. So there was a little bit of that where I was a little surprised by just because I feel like I'm Asian and I'm shooting a movie <laughs> in Asia, but they still treat you very differently. You know, there. I feel like there was still a little bit of a um, of a gap there, where right. they they treat you a little bit like the other. So I guess that's a really good way to segue into the topic mm. of diversity in filmmaking. Right. So do you feel that there's, outside of what you just mentioned, do you feel that there's a big difference filming in America versus filming in China? You know, it's interesting. Like, you know, we shot for five days here in Los Angeles for Go Back to China. And then the rest of it was in, shot in China. Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong was all shot in Hong Kong. There was like 
nothing shot here. Great. So I've actually had very little experience directing a film here in Los Angeles. Like I have more experience directing movies overseas, but you know, as a producer, I've been on set here. You know, the biggest difference honestly comes from the definition of indie filmmaking. Like here, you know, especially in Los Angeles, they're just a plethora of crew members. Right. They're young, they're hungry, they want to get into indie film. I think like there's still a little bit of magic to this. It's like you can always find crew who wants to work on film sets for not a lot of money because right. there's still something magical about filmmaking, even in a town like Los Angeles where there's so much of it. But I feel like, you know, when I've, whenever I've gone to Asia to shoot my films, it's a different kind of mentality. Like there is very much, this is my job, this is my rate. You know, like they they book your job and then like literally the day you wrap, the next day they're on to another job and then oh, wow. and so on. So for both of my films, I brought certain crew with me to Asia, like my DP, my production designers, certain department heads always travel to Asia with me. And I've always found too, even when, you know, the film is released, uh, Go Back to China premiered at South by Southwest and the previous one premiered at LA Film Festival. It's the American crew that really find it to be a big deal and they will fly themselves to Austin, they will fly, to, you know, to attend the premiere because they, they feel very proud of it. Whereas I feel like a lot of the Asian crew is just like, oh, okay, you got to a film festival. You know, it's like, I feel like once they finish a film and then they kind of move on to the next project, I think there's a little less sentimentality attached to it. Whereas a lot of the crew I find here, you know, it's beyond just the money it's also it's like they feel like they were part of something of creating a piece of work that they are proud of especially when it premieres at a major film festival they want to partake in that you know in, in that accomplishment right right um, yeah that's a, that sounds like it's a big difference now do you do you see like differences like that just on a day-to-day -day basis on set no so you know in terms of diversity in filmmaking in hollywood honestly like on set i never felt like oh, I am a Asian American filmmaker and the crew would, would treat me differently. I never really felt that way. I think probably more so when I went to Asia and they treated us more like the American crew, regardless if I have an Asian face or not. I think diversity really comes into play during the selling of a project, like during distribution, marketing, and all of that. Like trying to get people to first take a chance on your film and then when the film is actually done to watch it. I think that's probably the biggest change because like on set, honestly, from day to day, as a producer, as a director, I've never really felt like, oh, I'm a minority. You know, I'm like, I've, you know, I, I've never really felt like I was treated any differently, but yes, in pitching the project in trying to get the film seen, that's where I kind of feel the difference. Right. Or that just, makes sense. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. It's more of a, the opportunity to make a film. Yeah. Within the actual making of the film is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think what it comes down to is, you know, at least speaking from the Asian American perspective, you know, prior to Crazy Rich Asians, and honestly, even now, we just don't have a lot of, it, it, it all comes down to casting. You know, when I first finished the script for Go Back to China, this was 2017. So this was before Crazy Rich Asians came out. And even my own reps didn't really want me to make the movie because they're like, they like the story, 
but their concern was that it's too Asian and who can you cast in it? That's always her first question. Oh, wow. Who can you cast in it? And they're just, unfortunately, not a lot of Asian American movie stars. And that's all it is. It's, I would say it's not even really about discrimination. It's, it, it, you know, for Hollywood, it's about money. Right. It's like, oh, yeah. do, you ha- do you have an Asian American Jennifer Lawrence? Now you could argue maybe Aquafina, but she can't possibly in, be in every single movie. And I already don't know how she has the time to be in so many <laughs> projects that she's already attached to. Yeah, she's everywhere uh, right now. She's everywhere. Every other week, I feel like I'm seeing some other movie with Aquafina attached. <laughs> and that's just, and those are just the projects that's been announced. I mean, I've been doing a lot of general meetings around town and mm. I feel like every studio has a movie with Aquafina attached that's oh, not wow. even been announced yet. So she <laughs> <laughs> Red Hosh is definitely everywhere, right. but we need more Aquafinas. You know, right, like exactly. we need more people who could get a movie greenlit. So I think that's probably the number one hurdle for a lot of Asian American filmmakers right now. It's just that we don't have a lot of people that we could cast in our movie that would mean something to a studio or to right. financiers. So we need to create more of those potential movie stars so that we could get our stories told. To me, the big thing, like you just mentioned, is what can be done from that mm-hmm. point moving forward. Does every movie from now on have Aquafina and Henry Golden right. as the Asian? Mm-hmm. You know, even uh, Constance Wu, does she yeah. have opportunities? Or does that open the door for more and more people? I know going back to Jamie Chung, mm-hmm. you know, she's had opportunities open mm-hmm. up for her. Like, you know, she was on the, the Marvel uh, TV the show. The Gifted, yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah. uh-huh. and then she's done some other things. But it, was, it seems like with most ethnic groups there's always those couple people that kind of rise to the top and then like for you know i'm half mexican so i'm Mm -hmm. aware that michael Mm -hmm. pena is the face Mm -hmm. of mexican men in movies you know he's he's everywhere so that that's to me is one of the most interesting things about it is where do you create opportunities for you know because there's literally hundreds and hundreds of asian actors out there Mm -hmm. that could fill any role so where where do those opportunities like how does that get created yeah i mean hollywood is very risk averse right right so it's like they took a huge risk with crazy rich asians and it paid off but like you said you know there are other actors outside of people that appeared in crazy rich asians so henry golding gets cast in everything aquafina gets cast in everything Gemma chan is getting a lot of opportunities and that's all great because they feel like well they were in this big movie that made a ton of money but People didn't know who Henry Golding was or Aquafina or Gemma Chan, you know, but like that movie, you took a chance and that movie broke out. So why not take chances on more people out there and you just might get a breakout. But you know, like they're very, Hollywood is like I said, risk averse and they're not very imaginative and they keep casting (laughs) the same people. It's like, well, this movie did well, so let's just keep recycling the same people that's in this movie because we, they, they need a guarantee return on their money, which, you know, I understand. So I think like the stream, I honestly think, you know, as much flack as they get, the streamers are honestly saving, you know, these sort of mid-range movies with diverse leads. Because on Netflix, they don't need movie stars. 
like a Netflix could put on a movie, a great story, and it would catch on because they don't need to answer to the opening box office. I think like they're really creating a lot of store uh, opportunities for diverse stories to be told. Like I don't know if you saw Tiger Tail that came out a couple weekends ago. Alan Not Haynes. yet. No, that's on my list. Movie. Right. Um, and if you look at that movie, that movie doesn't have any movie stars. Right. They have one name, John Cho, who they cut out of the movie. <laughs> yeah, but like Tai Mott is someone who's, you know, he's like the go-to Asian dad in everyone's movie. <laughs> right. There's a lot of, I think, familiar faces in that movie, but like, I really appreciate Netflix making that movie because I just, I can't imagine any studio in town giving Alan Yang the money to go make right. a movie about his Taiwanese father and half of the movie is in, you know, like Taiwanese and Mandarin right. and without a single sort of famous face. I honestly think, you know, when it's the Netflix and the Hulus and, you know, the Amazons of the world that's really creating this opportunity for diverse storytelling because they don't have to answer to the opening box office. Right. And I think that's where like the really interesting stories are being told. And they're always creating shows. Like I'm very excited, you know, Mindy Kaling just created a new show for Netflix that Never Have I Ever that's oh, coming yeah. out I think in like a couple weeks and they casted a total unknown in the lead right. to play a younger a high school version of Mindy Kaling yeah. and that's like that's making great strides for representation for you know a young Indian woman who might have never seen a sitcom revolve around her before. I think what the streamers are doing are great in terms of just opening doors for these stories to be told because they could create the movie stars and also another one, um, To All the Boys I Loved Before yeah. on Netflix. So Lana Condor was someone, I mean, she's been in a few movies before that, uh, before To All the Boys, and Netflix really put her on the map. And now she's, you know, got, I don't know, like, I don't know how many millions of followers she has now on, um, on Instagram, but that's something where, yeah, like, they gave her an opportunity, and now she is able to carry a movie. If something else comes along um, that's not on Netflix, they could look at Lana Condor as someone potentially leading a YA rom-com with an Asian lead. These are the things I think like the gatekeepers just need to take the risk yeah. and sometimes those risks pay off and then suddenly we have one more movie star we could potentially put in our movie that will get financiers excited or distributors. Otherwise, it's very hard because Hollywood is so cast-driven. One of the things that you really hit on the head was that the only thing that matters is opening weekend. Yes. And that's really why they're not willing to take chances. No. With, you know, you can't risk not having right. Angelina Jolie and Brad right. Pitt and, you know, maybe Henry Golding and plays a side right. character with, with Matthew McConaughey, like we right. saw in The Gentleman. The but, gentleman. You know, yeah. So it, one thing I think that is starting to scratch the surface a little bit is maybe not necessarily some of the major Hollywood players, but the film industry as a whole is starting to realize just how important it is for people to see themselves in movies. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's whatever race, whatever gender, mm -hmm. it has such a huge, huge impact on who they want to be as a person, who they strive to be as mm -hmm. a person, and ultimately who they become as a person. So, right. you know, one of the, the movies that I have to talk about because mm -hmm. it was my favorite movie from last year mm -hmm. was The Farewell, mm -hmm. which again, going with Aquafina, yes. you know, going through the whole awards mm -hmm. circuit and everything, you know, she won Best Actress at mm -hmm. the Golden Globes, but outside of that, one of the only other awards that I know of was it got Best Picture from me. 
you know? Oh, oh. <laughs> well, that, that's just as good as the Golden Globes. Oh, gosh, hopefully. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's like, for me, that film, it was the closing night film at Seattle International mm -hmm. Film Festival, and that's where mm -hmm. I was introduced mm -hmm. to it. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. And to mm -hmm. me, it's another one of those landmark films right. that really kind of helps turn the corner a little bit. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that particular film as well. Oh, I love The Farewell. And Lulu is actually a friend of mine. It's funny, oh, wow. like we both, uh, I, I still remember the last time I saw her, besides really quickly at the Film Independent Awards, was we grabbed lunch right before we both went to China and shot our movies. Nice. So so she went back home and shot her movie about her grandma, and I went home and shot my movie about my dad, and we had like a really nice lunch right before. And then after that, her career just completely took off, and I don't think she took it a single day off <laughs> from promoting the movie. And I that is a great example of something. And I know, because I know her, I know what she went through to get mm -hmm. that movie made and it right. was a multi-year process and she heard a lot of no's around town so that she had to finally make it into um, a podcast uh, she told the story on This American Life and that was when she got the attention of Hollywood producers and even then like her own reps told her not to bother with the story and she listened to her own guts and, and look at what happened it's really interesting because many people might not know that her first film it's a rom-com called Posthumous with Rit Marling and Jack Houston, but it was on paper. That is the movie that you think would have brought her fame or it was more commercial because it's right. got two, you know, like famous Hollywood actors and yeah. rom-com beautifully like shot and produced and shot in Berlin. But it's the film that she made about her grandma that caught on. And yeah, she had Aquafina, but at the time, Aquafina, again, was when she cast Aquafina, this was before Crazy Rich Agents came out. No right, one really exactly. knew who Aquafina was, at least not compared to a Jack Houston or a, a Britt Marling. Right. And I remember, like, her wanting to do The Farewell really also inspired me to make my film because the conventional wisdom was always like, well, who wants to watch a movie about, you know, my family in China, right, right. you know? Just seeing her going through her journey, it in some ways inspired me. It's like, well, I also have a family story that I, a very personal story that I would love to tell. So I really commend her for doing something that is so personal to her. Like she, she took a gamble and the people who bet on it took a gamble because on paper there is no reason why that movie should have broken out but right. you make a heartfelt movie like that even though it is so specific to her upbringing in China it was universal enough I mean everyone has a grandma you know I think like it's just it just people connected with it I think because of the specificity and and I think that is like such a good example of something where you just like write from your heart and go for something and create work that is truly meaningful and personal to you without thinking about the bottom line like what well, is this a commercial story do I have famous actors in it and I think that's one case where diversity actually paid off you know where she wrote something that was very very personal and, and just like important to her so I'm really happy Oh, I'm sorry. You can tell there's just so much intimacy in her thought process of creating that film. And one of the things that I really liked about it too was it taught me some different aspects about the Chinese culture. Some of the conversations that they have at different dinner settings and stuff mm -hmm. like that about the difference between what it's like to be yeah. an American versus what it's like to live in China and just the different perceptions. So it's, it's interesting that you say that uh, I didn't know that you and her were friends, but I've mm -hmm. always kind of put 
her film and your two films in that same kind of box, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. of like those really authentic personal stories. That's really interesting to me that you actually know each other as well. Yeah. Thank you. Going back to go back to China, mm -hmm. uh, one of the cast members in that movie is Lin Chen, mm -hmm. who I just uh, watched her movie that yes. she directed and starred in that you're a producer of, uh -huh. of I Will Make You Mine. Mm -hmm. I loved it. It's a fantastic film. Do you take any sort of like a mentorship role with her uh -huh. or is it just kind of a connection that you've decided to work together a couple different times? Yes, so um, she first told me about I Will Make You Mine while we were on set and go back to China. She came up to me and she said, she just basically asked if she could like sit next to the monitor when she's not on screen because she wanted to um, just like observe what I do. And I said, yeah, of course. And then that's when she told me that she was planning on directing her first film, which I was like super excited for. I don't know if you've seen the other surrogate Valentine movies. I have not. You not have not. I, I will though, especially after watching this movie. Right. Like, now I've got to go see the rest of the story. Yes, yeah, so um, the story behind I Will Make You Mine is that it's supposed to be the third chapter of the Surrogate Valentine trilogy, but I do not blame you if you've never seen it because it's you know, even the creator of that, our mutual friend Dave Boyles, like, you know, I just said, I just called it a trilogy as a joke. I never meant it because it was very low budget, that it's got that sort of like lo-fi charm. And I think Dave Boyle never meant to actually finish the trilogy, but Lin Chen, who was an actress in the, the two previous films, like wanted to, to finish the trilogy for him. So she kind of took over the reins and asked if she could finish the story. And what's interesting about her take is that now it's told from the female perspective like right. the first two films were told from from go's perspective go um the musician that all right. three women in the third film are uh, kind of have a uh, relationship with so the first two movies are very kind of bro-ish <laughs> and and the style also very much reflects like the age of the character as well and what i love about lynn's take is that yeah these are not just from the female perspective, but females of a certain age in their right. late 30s looking back. Whereas the first two movies was very much from like a 20 something male perspective. And you really could see the growth, not only in the characters, but also I think in the filmmaking, just because we're all 10 years older from when the first movie was shot and made. So right. I mean, that was very interesting. So Lynn, you know, told me about it. And I'm someone like, you know, I actually connected to Lynn through Dave Boyle, uh, who was the director of the first two films. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, very much know the history of Sir Valentine. I was a fan of it. So when she told me that she was going to make the third chapter, I was super excited. And I told her, you know, like, whatever you need, let me know. I'm happy to help you. So when we came back from China, you know, when I was in post, and that's when she's like, yo, remember I told you I want to make my movie. I think like the time is now, I want to make it this summer. And she gave me a number of what she had to make the, to, to make the movie. And I told her that it was impossible. But <laughs> she proved me wrong because I've never made a movie for this little money before. And I was like, oh my God, Lynn, I will help you for free. But like, <laughs> I just don't know if we can make this movie for the amount that you want to make it for. But you know what? She proved me wrong. We made this movie for so little money and she like did a Kickstarter campaign which she basically spearheaded and, and ran and oh, wow. doubled the budget but even with the Kickstarter money it was still very very little money but she is a hustler first of all she raised all the money on kickstarter and she was just tweeting every day like getting people to donate money to her she got all the locations for free 
I mean, these oh, wow. are, you know, we live in Los Angeles. People are very film savvy. Right, like, right. she was able to get, like, these restaurants to, like, give her the location for free. These restaurants normally would charge you probably, like, three grand a day. Wow. She got them all for free just through you know her tenacity and her persistence and she's like i will tweet about your restaurant i would blog about your restaurant and then she got all of her friends to work um, on the movie for free like she just pulled so many favors and it was amazing and she did it and she proved me wrong and i'm really happy now i'm like oh i only want to make movies for <laughs> money because right. i obviously was spending way too much money making my movies and it was she really like poured in her heart and soul and like i think coming from an acting background she was really good with like talking to the actors and just like you know knowing their language so honestly you know even though this is her first time directing she's been on film sets all like for 20 years you know as an actor so she she knows the in and outs so i was very happy to have been just a small part of this project just in helping her i think things that she was not very familiar with like sack paperwork payroll like that kind of like Mm. permits like you know so i did all the paperwork stuff for her but she really put together the the project in terms of getting her actor friends to act for very little money like we got talent from tamita to come in for a day for scale and you know these are the type of things we we all had high hopes for the movie because we all poured in so much of ourselves um and, and we got this thing made for so little money and then for it to get into south by southwest was like such a huge validation of everyone's efforts and of course for the festival to be canceled I mean, now it's just sort of like, okay, everything is canceled. But back then in early March, because it was the first film festival to get canceled, I think it all hit us, you know, very heavily, especially for her, because it's like her baby and she pours so much of herself in it. And I think we were all in shock. Now we're all like, film festival, at least we're alive (laughs) and healthy. You know, like now, like I feel like all of our perspectives have changed in just the last month and a half. Right. Yeah. Like we were saying earlier, we're living in a different world now. Yeah. I remember when I first started speaking to you about doing this interview mm-hmm. is it was South by Southwest was coming yes. up and, and uh, yeah like, I was hey, leaving for South by yeah, yeah yeah and you you just seemed so excited about the opportunity just mm-hmm. I could tell of that yeah. was coming up but yeah you're right it's things are totally different now and then I was looking at the website which is just straight I will make you mine.com mm-hmm. right and I'll have all of these links and everything to, to where people can find you and the movie and, and land on the, the website page yeah. for this podcast was there anything else that you wanted to discuss as far as the diversity topic before we really wrap things up? I think like ultimately, you know, we're all fighting for eyeballs. Um, And it's like, if you, if people want to see diverse stories told, go out and watch these movies. Like, go back to China, RHMR, Hong Kong, I Will Make You Mind, all of these movies starring Asian Americans in lead roles and created by Asian Americans. They're all very widely available on VOD platforms. And it's honestly not that expensive. You know, I think Go Back to China is available to rent for $3.99 now because it's now now it's been out for a while. It's really not that much money. Sometimes I do see people tweeting about the movie and it's great and I, I love that people are watching the movie, but they're like linking it to like YouTube links where someone just uploads okay. the movie for free. We're not getting any of that money. I love that you're watching it, but it's technically stealing. If if you like, if you want to see the movie enough, spend the three ninety nine. It's really not that much money. You know, sometimes like I see, I caught one YouTube link that has since been taken down, but it's you know it had like thousands of views. You know, and if I had gotten four dollars from that, that's like money in my pocket that I'm never right. gonna see. So 
go out and support these movies. I used to say, hey, go out and buy a movie tickets, support an opening weekend. That's not happening anymore. I don't know when uh, the theatrical film going experience is going to come back. But all of these movies are available on VOD, not that expensive. Pay for a download and support these stories if you want more of these stories to be told. I think that's the real key is making those purchases and showing yeah. the powers that be this yeah. is what we want to see and that's like what we were talking about earlier which to me is the most important thing is how do you create opportunities for more people that's right. that's, the that's one right of the ways is, yeah. you know, that's one of the ways to do it so uh, Emily thank you so much for mm -hmm. being on the podcast and I'll get this out there no for thank you said, for having uh, me yeah. yeah it's great to have you finally good to talk to you after a couple years of watching yes. your films good luck to you in the future yeah you too thank you this is Mark Morin with the 206.com podcast. Thank you very much for listening. That wraps up episode two of the Diversity in Film podcast. Thank you for listening and special shout out to Emily for being on the podcast. Head on over to the podcast page on 206.com to find links and info for the movies we discussed. Next up on the Diversity in Film podcast is filmmaker Vivian Hua, who is also the executive director for Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Watch for that episode to debut on Monday, May 18th. Shout out again to Lex the Lexicon Artist for providing the music for her song Party Hop, which was the first single off her latest album, Alter Ego. That's what you're listening to right now. I'll be talking to Lex on episode four of the podcast, so stay tuned. Once again, thank you for listening to the 206.com podcast, Diversity in Film Interview Series. 